Well, good morning to you all. I hope that um, you've been enjoying this recent bout of warm weather as much as I have. Um, it reminds me very much of home because um, back in Zimbabwe from really the end of September through till the end of April, we enjoy weather like this. So I've been reveling in it, but um, I know that um, there are many who find it very warm. Anyway, to our text today. Brothers and sisters in Christ, the end is nigh. (laughs) Our text this week is from the book of James, chapter 5, verses 13 to 18. And if I could ask you to turn there now. And this leaves us with only one section to deal with after today. So we are very near to the end of this great piece of God's work that has given us so much practical advice for living His way. You may recall that in my last sermon I mentioned that one of the delights of expositional preaching was the way that one is inescapably confronted with some difficult texts. Thus it was that I was extremely delighted to read in one commentary on this section that it is one of the most contentious portions of Scripture in the whole of the New Testament. Super. Some of the difficulties include, and this is by no means an exhaustive list, healing, what sort of illness exactly is James talking about, physical or spiritual, and what is the significance of anointing with oil. Also, we have to deal with the business of confession of sin. And although I'm going to mention some of the disputes, it is vital that we don't get caught up unprofitably in those and thereby miss the important fundamentals that are inarguable. Difficult or not, we know that all of God's word has profit for us, so let's read now what James has to say. Starting in verse 13. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing psalms. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Confess your trespasses to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, And he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three years and six months. And he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth produced its fruit. Although I have mentioned that there is theological dispute over aspects of this text, I mean this mostly so that you would be correctly informed. It is far more important that we leave here today, not with some um, attractive titbits of arcane theology that are basically useless in helping us through the work of sanctification, but we go away with a nice big fistful of bread and cheese that will nourish our bones. We must see the basic picture here rather than looking for those little nuances and shading. James has given us a very definite theme that is inarguable, And moreover, it's one that we often fail in. It's very simple. Prayer. That word is used directly no less than seven times and it is inferred twice. 
pray in suffering, ask others to pray for you in sickness, confess your sins in prayer, pray for others' healing, trust in the effectiveness of prayer, pray earnestly, pray often. Do you think that prayer might be important? Does this give you that idea? I hope so. Of course it is, but you know that I'm going to ask you now, why don't we do it enough? I'm certain that if I ask for a show of hands here, that there is not one of us, except for me, that doesn't have problems with some kind of suffering or sin. I think maybe I should say that again. I don't think there is not one of us here that doesn't have problems with some kind of suffering or sin. Therefore, the call to prayer is relevant and immediate. We need to do it now, and we need to do it often. To fully understand what James has to say, let's just start to dissect this passage. Verse 13. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. The Greek word James uses for suffering is one that he has used before. It is kakapathia, and it is seen in verse 10 to describe the tribulations of the prophets. You know, when we hear this English word suffering, it probably calls to mind somebody who is very ill. This Greek word, however, well, it has a much more general meaning covering many, many different types of difficult experiences. For example, we see Paul using it to describe his imprisonment in 2 Timothy. This is the first thing that we will learn then, that we will not be confining our prayer only to moments when we are bleeding in intensive care. There are many types of suffering and hence there are many opportunities for prayer. In August, Kalfane and I attended a short Bible school across in Palmy where we learnt a very impressive word. You know it's coming, don't you? One of those you might use in idle conversation with other believers to make you look more sanctified than you really are. And the interesting thing is I remember that Kalfane wasted absolutely no time in using it on our return either. It is the word pericope. And it's spelt sort of like periscope without the S, but then that would just be a straight piece of pipe. Now we've heard all the warnings about trying to understand a verse out of context without looking at the text immediately around it. What, what do we see on both sides? Now, technically, a pericope, we've already heard a pericope this morning, it's a passage of scripture. I'll find read us a pericope. But it has a, a, a different sort of theological meaning um, in that we are casting the net for understanding a bit more widely. For example, what does this verse say within the context of the whole of the book of James? Well, what has he already told us about suffering? In verse 10 and 11 of the same chapter he says, My brethren, Take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord as an example of suffering and patience. Indeed, we count the blessed who endure. You have heard of the perseverance of Job and seen the, intended, the end intended by the Lord, that the Lord is very compassionate and merciful. So, what are the key phrases? Suffering and patience. We count them blessed who endure and the perseverance of Job. You start to see that theme coming out? And also we see the same thing in James chapter 5, verse 7. Be patient, brethren. Chapter 1, verse 12. Blessed is the man who endures temptation. And in the same chapter, verses 2 to 4. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces 
patience. But let patience have its perfect work that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Well, what's the pericope then? What do these pieces of text consistently tell us about what we might, might be expected to gain from our prayer when we are suffering? Do you think it might be instant relief? <laughs> I don't think so. Uh, it's not what we've already heard James say earlier, is it? We might want, most of all, that immediate release. But God, in his wisdom, knows best for us in gro- what is best for us in growing more Christ-like. And that we will learn nothing and grow not at all if he simply removes that irritation. There's an interesting thing that I think most of us would know, and, and that is that God has made our ways, made our bodies in such a way that we have no actual memory of pain. Ladies, for example, those of you who have given birth, I'm sure that you will testify that, that doing that was extremely painful in a way that really I guess no man could ever understand. But thing is you can only remember the event can't you? You can't remember the actual pain and I suspect that is a real blessing you did learn something however from that pain about endurance and the value of what it produced imagine if babies just popped out with no trouble at all I don't think it would be the same somehow that labour process in some way mysteriously adds value to the child So the prayer that we should be offering in in these circumstances, the circumstances of suffering, it should be twofold. Firstly, for the endurance to bear the suffering graciously and secondly, for the insight of the Holy Spirit for the lesson in the suffering. You know, I can certainly personally testify to the stupidity of having to go through the same trials many times because I was too slow to grasp their meaning. There will be times when God does act immediately, but we have no way of knowing when or why he works in this way. And I'm going to talk about this more in a little while. It occurs to me that there is a very important matter of orientation here. When we are experiencing physical, mental or spiritual pain, where does our attention usually focus? On me, generally on ourselves. We turn away from God. When we make the deliberate effort to pray, then we turn towards him and that is the way, after all, that we are supposed to be facing. We also learn from this verse that our prayers are not supposed to be intermittent. The tense of the Greek that's used tells us that our prayers are expected to be continuous, not stop-start. Are you suffering? Then keep praying. Keep praying. Don't stop. Focus on God. In his instruction to pray, James is offering the solution on many, many levels to the difficulties that he has early discussed in his book. Are we listening? Now we know that it's not all doom and gloom. Life isn't always difficult. And God often grants us periods of joy and wonder. I've just spoken about orientation when we're in suffering. Which way do we face when we're suffering? Which way do we face when we're enjoying ourselves? Are we so wrapped in, our, wrapped in our personal enjoyment that we don't take time to recognise their source and thank the giver? You know, when I look around me today and 
I see the general godlessness of our society, it occurs to me that it's not um, um, disassociated from the good times that generally we, we enjoy as a people here. We have it very easy. And so we don't remember to look at God. And this is why James counsels us in the second part of verse 13. Is anyone cheerful? Well, let him sing songs. I do know, however, that there are some people here who would um, probably spare us if they didn't do that in public. Hmm. Now, this word that's um, rendered cheerful, it means to be in good heart or having a joyful attitude. Actually, it has nothing to do with the state of the body, but a very great deal to do with the heart. It tells us that we may find ourselves praising God, although we aren't physically well. And I suspect that in many cases we may find that to be more effective than popping some pills. The world tells us that we should look inside ourselves for strength and enlightenment. On the other hand, God's word says that we should look to him as the source of all joy and strength and in all circumstances and at all times. Well, which one are we listening to? On reflection, we can see that the words suffering and cheerful will summarise all of life's experiences, don't they? I mean, really, if you think about it, there's nothing that doesn't fit into one of those two categories. So James is pointing to universal Christian solutions. As always, he is very practical. He doesn't want us to just sit around with some intellectual experience of God, but to reach out and engage him and make him real in our lives, whatever the present circumstance. One commentator I read put this attitude very beautifully. He wrote like this. He said, This then is the individual at prayer. He is reflecting all of his life upwards, acknowledging the sufficiency and sovereignty of God, practicing the grace of acceptance and rejecting the disgrace of stubbornness. In this, the voice of prayer and the voice of praise are at one for alike. They say that the voice of God is good. Before we carry on to examine the rest of the passage, I want to take a a brief look at the scriptural understanding of healing, since it is very pertinent to this matter. And I found this tidy explanation in the Believer's Bible Commentary, and firstly because I'm lazy, and secondly because I'm not as clever as the fellow who wrote it, I've used it pretty much verbatim. And I've included it for future reference in your sermon notes, because it's one of those useful things that you might want to look back at later. So, at least don't throw it in the bin while I'm watching. There are ten points. It's called an excursus on divine healing. One, Scripture demonstrates that all sickness is, in a general way, the result of sin in the world. If sin had never entered, there would be no sickness. Two, sometimes sickness is a direct result of sin in in a person's life. In 1 Corinthians 11, we read of certain Corinthians who were sick because they had participated in the Lord's Supper without judging sin in their lives. That is, without confessing and forsaking it. Three, not all sickness is a direct result of sin in a person's life. We can see that Job was sick in spite of the fact that he was a most righteous man. The man born blind was not suffering for the sins that he had committed. We see in John 9, 
Epaphroditus was sick because of his tireless activity in the work of the Lord. He was just working too hard. Gaius was spiritually healthy, but apparently he was physically unwell. Four, sometimes sickness is a result of satanic activity. It was Satan who caused Job's body to be covered in those boils. It was Satan who afflicted him. It was Satan who crippled the woman in Luke 13 so that she was bent double, unable to straighten herself up. And Paul, we, we all know that he had a physically, physical infirmity caused by Satan. He called it a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to buffet me. Five, God can and does heal. In a very real sense, all of healing is divine. And one of the names of God, in fact, in the Old Testament is Jehovah Rafika. And that means the Lord who heals you. We should be acknowledging God in every case of healing. You know, sometimes it looks as though there is some contradiction between trusting in prayer and anointing for healing and the taking of medicine and going to see a doctor. But let us remember what James has already told us. He said that every good and perfect gift comes from above. Yes, comes from God, doesn't it? We love to look for the the miraculous and find that this is the only place that we'll see God's activity. But the truth is that he is found absolutely everywhere, even in a small white pill. God gives us medicine and doctors and miracles alike according to his will and to his wisdom. If I take aspirin for a headache, for example, is the relief that I feel merely a chemical one or is it the result of a consequence or is it the consequence of a process that is ordained and maintained continuously by God? Of course it comes from God at the end of the day. So is it then of any less value or any less amazing than the miracle? Of course not. We must recognize and thank the source. We must praise God for our healing. It is clear from the Bible that God uses different means in healing. Sometimes he heals through naturally bo- natural bodily processes and he has placed with inside us the most amazing powers of recuperation. It really is the most incredible thing. You know, if there are students here studying biology, if you've looked at biology yourself, you'll know that it's just the most amazing things. And the result of this, doctors know that most things are better in the morning. That's why they tell you to take two aspirin and call them in the morning. (laughs) Sometimes he heals through medicine. And we know this is scriptural. Paul advised Timothy, for example, to use a little wine for your stomach's sake. Sometimes He heals through deliverance from underlying fears, resents, self-preoccupation and guilts, all of which can have an effect through the mind on the body. Sometimes he heals through physicians and surgeons. Jesus himself explicitly taught that sick people need a physician. Paul spoke of Luke as the beloved physician and it certainly recognises the need of doctors among Christians. But God also heals miraculously. And the Gospels contain many illustrations of this. It would be incorrect to say that God generally heals in this way, but we can't say that he never does. And there is nothing in the Bible to discourage us from believing that God can heal miraculously today.
7, yet we must always be clear that it is not always God's will to heal. Paul left Trophimus sick at Miletus. The Lord did not heal Paul of his thorn in the flesh. And also, if it were God's will to heal, some of us would never grow old or die, which could be a bit of a problem if you were waiting for an inheritance. Eight, God has not promised to heal in every case. Therefore, healing is not something that we can demand from him. In Philippians 2, healing is spoken of as a mercy, not something that we have any right to expect. Nine, while it is true in a general sense that healing is included in the atonement, yet not all of the blessings that we know that are in the atonement have been given to us yet. For example, the redemption of the body was included in Christ's work for us, but we won't be getting that until Christ comes again for his saints. And at that time, we will be completely and finally healed of all diseases. And lastly, 10. It is not true that failure to be healed indicates a lack of faith. If it were, this would mean that some would live on forever, but nobody does. You know? Imagine if you found somebody who had amazing faith, they'd never die. Ever met one? I haven't. They all die in the end. Paul and Trophimus and Gius were not healed, and yet their faith was virile and active. So, a summary then, just to go back over what we've heard. Sin and the presence of illness are directly linked. Sickness may manifest in our lives in many ways, for example, directly because of personal sin or attack by Satan or through natural causes, such as overwork. All healing, though, ultimately comes from God, but it might be worked out in different ways. Sometimes miraculously, sometimes through the natural process he has set in our bodies, and sometimes through the work of doctors and medicines. However, Sometimes God may choose for his own purposes not to heal and he has not promised to always do so. Since healing is applied, sorry, since healing is, is in the sovereign will of God applied through his great wisdom, its absence does not necessarily indicate a deficiency of faith in our part. This means that there is no recipe for healing we can be taught no course we can pay for and no conference we can attend to learn how to heal or be healed. Our role remains the same. What is that? At any time, we should be asking ourselves whether our behaviour in this moment fulfils the two commandments to love God with everything we have and to love our neighbours as ourselves. From that position then, we can trustfully ask God for our and others' healing and rest in his sovereign response. So now that we know a bit about the background of healing, we can move on to address the rest of the text. And you'll be pleased to know I'll be moving on quite quickly from here. Verse 14. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. Let's begin by stating that if you call the elders when you have merely stubbed your toe, they will, with the greatest of respect, and in a very loving way, of course, suggest that you take the ritual two aspirins and call them in the morning. Hmm. 
Although not directly stated, we can reasonably infer from the text that since the elders are going to be praying over the ill person, that they are crook in bed. They are really ill. And this tells us when we need to be resorting to this course of action. And actually there's no reason why we shouldn't be doing it today. I happen to know that Mr. Yonker has in his office a jar of oil. Isn't that correct? Yes, it's there for our use. I mentioned at the beginning that this is a contentious passage and that contentiousness starts in this verse. Okay? There are three main interpretations. Some commentators insist that the illness concerned is purely spiritual and not physical and therefore we shouldn't be wasting time or valuable castral GTX on those who just have a severe flu. The second possibility is linked to the first in that the claim is the the illness is physical but is directly caused by sin. And they get this idea based on verse 15 which includes and if he has committed sins he will be forgiven. In other words, there is some spiritual element to the illness. And thirdly and lastly, there are those, and I would have to say that this was the majority view in the commentaries that I consulted, who say that this action is intended only for the treatment of physical illnesses. So it's very confusing. What should our conclusion be today then? Well, let's just start where James did. He has exhorted us to prayer in suffering. So, let's pray. Are you really ill physically? Well, call the elders to pray for you. Are you suffering from a persistent sin that is deeply troubling you and dragging you down? Call the elders to pray for you. I might be naive in saying this, but it seems such a waste of time to to just debate the finer points of theology when there is a very obvious scriptural solution in front of us that we can carry out immediately trusting in God to do the right thing. That trust is so important because if we don't find instant healing or for that matter any healing at all it isn't because we didn't figure out the right route as I've already said. People might come and say ah, you weren't healed because you didn't have enough faith brother or You weren't healed because it was physical suffering rather than spiritual. What we have to accept is what I've already said. Maybe God in his infinite wisdom knows that that instant healing would be the wrong thing for us at that time. And although this clashes with the popular interpretation that we hear all the time, God loves you, God loves you, no mention of sin, the truth is that sometimes his love is expressed in allowing us to continue suffering. That's a hard thing to confront, but it's true. Sometimes he will allow us to continue suffering to the point of death. What he really wants to see is our participation and sanctification, our correct conduct in that time as a testimony to his greatness and his glory. Now, I believe some comment is necessary on the use of oil. I have here some Briggs & Stratton heavy-duty four-stroke engine oil, SAE 30. Hmm. Are we going to use this? I don't see any takers. Very disappointing. Does this oil have any physical or religious or ceremonial value? Well, to start off with, we need to look at the historical use of oil. 
it was very widely recommended in ancient times for curing everything from toothache to paralysis. And all of us know the example in Luke of the good Samaritan who bound up the wounded man pouring on oil and wine. Is James saying that the elders should come to the sick bearing both spiritual and natural cures? Well, there are two problems with this. Firstly, we have no evidence that all that, although the oil has a very wide recommendation, that it is a panacea. We don't know that it's a cure for everything. We know that it isn't, actually. Secondly, why would it be necessary to specifically require the elders to apply a natural cure? Surely by the time you got to be really sick, you would have taken some medicine yourself or you would have asked somebody else around you to give it to you. So it seems unlikely that James's counsel was just for a pill and a prayer. There are two Greek words that are used in Scripture to mean anointed. They are krio and elepho. And although they are not exclusively used in the ways that I'm about to explain to you, the waiting is greatly in favour of recognising Creo as the one that is used when a sacred or religious meaning is intended. And by the way, this word Creo is a root word for Christos. Okay, We know Christ, and it means the anointed one. However, James has used the latter of these two words, Alepho, which I saw described in one commentary as the profane and mundane word. In other words, it's the one that you use when you're smearing stuff onto something. Ladies, if you put some cream on this morning, you could correctly have used a lefo, but not creo, if you were Greek. And it's interesting that these two words have the same meaning in the modern language, but probably not my horrible pronunciation. So James is definitely using a word that describes physical action, but we cannot remove some symbolic significance since it is linked to the act of praying. So let us consider the anointing of oil in that way, physical action with spiritual significance. Now, before anybody objects to religious symbolism, please can I point out that we have some powerful scriptural precedents for this position in the, in the place of bread and wine that we use in communion and the water that we use for baptism. However, we should be careful not to give any special significance to the oil itself. It is just oil. And I'm guessing vegetable oil is probably better than dirty old engine oil. That's not what you have in your office. No. It doesn't need to be expensively scented. It doesn't need to be blessed or any such nonsense. It's just oil. If healing occurs, it is by the power of God and none other and this is why the text stresses that the anointing is done with prayer in the name of the Lord. We must now deal with the next verse so that it doesn't confuse us as to the doctrine of salvation by grace through faith. Verse 15, And the prayer of faith will save the sick, and the Lord will raise him up, and if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Read on its own, this verse may seem to suggest that the prayer of others will be able to enable salvation, but we know James isn't talking about spiritual healing here. Firstly, that idea doesn't fit into the context of the surrounding verses. We've already seen that. Secondly, the words that he uses 
are consistent with physical healing. For example, he uses the word ejero to raise up. And it's a word that's used to show the renewed physical vigor of healed people elsewhere in the New Testament. What this verse does show us is the importance of faith in the process of healing as the key factor in facilitating the effectiveness of the prayer. Sometimes when our bodies are weak, our faith is too. Hence we must call for others to aid us. Surely it makes sense then to call for those with strong faith and although it's not exclusive, a strong faith must be apparent in a man who's qualified to serve as an elder. Thus the elders are suggested as a good place to start. This verse then is giving us a picture of a person who is lying ill in bed. The elders praying over them in faith and the Lord intervening to raise them up to health. At this point, may I direct you back to our earlier excursus on healing? We may see a miracle. We might. But it is God in the end, whether by miracle or medicine, who will raise them up. How about this matter of sin then? There is a certainty in the language used. If he has committed sins, he might, you know, he will be forgiven. We already know that sin can be the cause of illness. While not stated as a requirement in this verse, it's not out of context considering the following one concerning confession, that acknowledgement of sin to God in the presence of elders could be a very vital part of the scene. What kind of sin might we have to confess? Well, I think it would only be serious and repeated sin that would cause God to afflict us with sickness to get our attention. I'm sure sure that if this was the case, we wouldn't have any confusion in our minds about what we would need to bring out into the open with the aid of the elders to ask in faith for forgiveness. And we can have confidence that God will forgive us in that circumstance. A question. If confession can heal us from sickness, brought on as a consequence of sin, well, (laughs) why not try to avoid the sickness altogether by confessing earlier on in the peace before the sin really takes root. Yeah? You know, sins like mushrooms grow best in the dark and we all know what makes the best fertiliser for them. However, if we expose sin to the perfect light of God and we don't try to hide it away for further enjoyment, it will have no nutrients in which to grow and fester and bind us up in hopelessness. And this is why we have this next counsel from James. Confess your trespasses to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. While this is very wise counsel, we have to be very careful about how we live it. I'm not suggesting that the next time we have an open time of prayer that anyone stands up on the spur of the moment and confesses to some vile deed. We want to avoid any possibility of showmanship on the part of the confessor such as the hypocrites that are spoken about in Matthew 6, who love to pray pray where everybody could see them. And we also want to prevent any voyeurism on the part of the congregation. We need to pick our spot prayerfully and carefully, and depending on the circumstance, take some pastoral advice before proceeding. It is a biblical principle that confession is due to the one who is offended. So there are different types of confession. We will have secret confession to God because there are secret sins that are committed against God 
alone. We will have private confession because some sins are committed against a man as well as God and sometimes public confession because sins are committed against a group. And in the last case, the elders would really definitely want to carefully supervise that process. When we feel the necessity for confession, we ought not to be un. feel the necessity for confession, we ought not to be under pressure to confess from any sources other than the Holy Spirit working through our consciences. And while I have suggested some counsel, there is no need at all for any intermediary between us and God. Okay, let's be clear about this. Calvin, and I mean Calvin and not Calphane, puts it like this. Confession of this nature ought to be free so as not to be exacted of all, but only recommended to those who have need of it. And even those who use it according to their necessity must neither be compelled by any precept nor artfully induced to enumerate all of their sins, but only insofar as they shall deem it for their interest that they may obtain the full benefit of consolation. When we ignore the possibilities of healing that are offered by confession and prayer, We become just like a man who is bleeding to death, walking blindly through a street full of bandages. The remedy is accessible. It is immediate and real, and we would be wise to use it before the situation becomes desperate and unpleasant. The final part of this passage asks us a question. James writes, The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain and it did not rain on the land for three years and six months. And he prayed again and the heaven gave rain and the earth produced its fruit. What James is doing is asking us if we really believe in the power of prayer. Do you believe in the power of prayer? Do you believe that it can heal you from sickness and release you from sin? Do you really have faith that prayer expressed through the will of God can have physical results? James uses the example of Elijah because to the Jews he was something like Superman, Spider-Man and the Fantastic Four all rolled up into one. The point he makes though is that these incredible accomplishments such as starting and stopping the rain, well they came from a man just like us. We know this because we can read about him warts and all in scripture. Elijah suffered from exactly the same faults that we do, but he knew how to pray with faith. And look at what he did. What will you do if you engage God earnestly and regularly in prayer? Let us pray. Father, thank you for the bright and clear light of your word. Thank you that it leaves us in no doubt as to what we should be doing. Father, I pray that uh, your Holy Spirit would work in our lives.
to challenge us to take what we have learnt away and to make it a part of our everyday lives. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.